Hello and welcome to Yamaha Music's podcast, Artist Insights. My name is Phoebe Ely and I'm going to be taking you behind the scenes to give you an exclusive insight into the lives and journeys of some of Yamaha's leading artists. On today's episode, I have got the gorgeous and exceptionally talented baritone horn player Katrina Marzella. Katrina has been hailed as the leading baritone horn player of a generation and if you are lucky enough to have heard any of her performances, it is so easy to see why. Having won numerous solo awards including BBC Radio 2 Young Brass Soloist of the Year and performed at the likes of Glastonbury Festival and all over the world at various leading brass band championships, Katrina's musical career has soared from strength to strength all at the same time as becoming a fully-fledged, qualified solicitor and a mother of two. Her career is one full of huge accomplishment and adventure, and I'm absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to speak with her today. Katrina, thank you so much for joining me today, and what an incredible journey you've been on so far. Oh, thank you for having me, Phoebe. Pleasure to be here. You're so welcome. So I'd like to take you back, if I may, to where it all started. And I believe you were nine years old when your teacher, Margaret Foster, suggested that you take up the baritone horn because you couldn't quite reach the end of a trombone at that age. Am I right? <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So um, Mrs. Mrs. Foster, she was um, a fantastic teacher up in uh, West Lothian, uh, who had brilliant instrumental teaching and support all funded for free actually by the local council at the time which wow. was quite amazing and she she suggested that I should use a baritone because the slide was a little bit long I could only reach fourth position and I, I remember being a little bit devastated about that actually <laughs> um, but I, I reluctantly obliged and then about a year later um, when I was in primary seven she suggested I could now move on to the trombone, but I think I retorted with something like, I, I like my valves now. So that was that. Was <laughs> I like that. my valves. Yeah. I love that so much. And I could tell, <laughs> even when I read that in an article, I loved it. So I got, just got this sense of even then at nine years old, there was this hugely determined and ambitious little girl <laughs> who had the makings of the talent that you've absolutely gone on to become. And I'm just wondering, thinking about those early years, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about when you first fell in love with music and what your earliest memories of live music performance are? Sure I, I was really lucky to grow up in a family that loved music my dad's side of the family uh, is from Italy um, so I always grew up with um, quite dynamic family members who all spoke with their hands and liked to sing and were quite extrovert and and loved to perform things like that so yeah. we've got quite a, quite a few musicians in that in that side of the family from singers to rock guitarists to to brass players as well so um, I, I grew up with a lot of musical influences and, and also a big love of opera I should say I really was aware of wow. opera from from being really young especially Italian opera like Puccini, Rossini things like that so that that was that side of family and then my mum's side of the family comes from um, the Hebrides my granny Timmins used to come from she she was born sorry in Stornoway, um, and spoke Gaelic fluently. That was her first language. So there was a real appreciation of traditional Scottish music. Um, my mum always sort of sang little songs to us as as children. She was a primary school teacher, so was 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 really passionate about music and songs for little kids. So yeah, from really early on, I I remember being surrounded by lots of different styles and and types of music. I always loved singing. Um, I had a big sister and older cousin. We were always 
performing this, that, or the other. <laughs> and then my, my dad, my dad, when I was growing up, played in Fitburn Band, which is one of Scotland's premier bands, still is a fantastic yeah. ensemble. And and I used to sort of hear the band and go along and, and, and things like that. So those little influences sort of all mount up, don't they? And they set you on a bit of a, a trajectory, I guess. Um, like I said, we're lucky enough to get free instrumental tuition in West Lothian. And I don't think it was any... So lucky. Yeah. I, I don't think it was any surprise then that at that time the, they became the European Youth Brass Band Championships. I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? You open up the opportunity to everyone and then the standard just exploded. So it was a re- really uh, uh, lots of little things that all mounted up and helped me as a child. You can see that now looking yeah, back, right? Yeah, such an exciting yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, your dad was a huge influence on your playing from such an yeah. early age. Yeah, what sure. impact, I'm interested, did his musicality have on you as a player? And what did you, did you always have a yearning to be part of the brass band world from a young age because of the environment you were in as a child? Um, yeah, my dad undoubtedly um, was a massive influence on me um, as a young musician and, and still is an influence on me uh, even now. Um, he's been a great supporter throughout my whole life. Very, very lucky and grateful for that. Just having someone that, that played in the band, I've been, I was aware of these brass bands that existed and, and, and like I said, maybe heard them at our local gala days, which is like a fair um, in West Lothian, a nice tradition up there. Um, West Lothian is a real mining, traditionally mining area of Scotland. It's almost like the Yorkshire of Scotland in the sense there's lots of brass bands associated with collieries up there. So, um, yeah, I became really aware of the brass band and then I, I joined in myself when I was a little bit older. And then it's funny how little things end up influencing, isn't it? Because my dad had... Uh, in his wardrobe, he had all these tapes, and it was cassette tapes back then. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say. I love that. that um, a, a chap <laughs> called Tommy, who was a who was a tuba player. He, his nickname was Tommy Tapes, and he used to produce yeah. these tapes of different recordings, different mixes of brass band tracks from my dad. And I was just probably a nosy little kid, and and went in, and I used to take these tapes and listen to them. And I remember actually lying in my bed at night listening with headphones and a little cassette player to all these different tapes. And looking back now, it was all absolute top-end stuff, real mix of, of, of brass band um, classics and then the, the new, more avant-garde stuff. And and as well as that, you know, loads of um, classical music tapes. So, um, and opera, as I mentioned before. So, um, yeah, just um, not only my dad has sort of seen an example to me, um, and also a teacher who often gave me lessons at home, that was massive. But just having, um, I don't know, resources around me and music just available at home, I just went and explored and, and, and really, really re- resonated with me somehow. Yeah, I love that you're just immersed in music in all areas. It sounds incredible childhood to be part of and. You also, I know, got to play at Sydney Opera House at the age of 12, which, to be honest, is a huge achievement in itself. But I just wondered if you could talk us through that particular time and what that felt like to be part of something so huge at that point in such early years of your life. Yeah, I mean, what what a chance. I mean, that that's a real good line on the CV, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's yeah. a good one, I, mean, I have to say. <laughs> I have to admit, um, I was completely unaware and you know ignorance is bliss I, I just dotted along and, and went with the flow I was a little kid I had no idea what was going on and I played in it in Sydney Opera House as happily as I would have played in Falkirk Town Hall quite frankly so <laughs> um, it's funny looking back now it really is bizarre but what it 
did spark in me though was um probably a real appreciation of travel and other cultures and I ended up going back to uh, Australia actually as a student I chose to study abroad um, and that's where I met my husband <laughs> and then so it's oh. funny how things work out you know um, yeah, but it definitely def- yeah it definitely did um, it opened up avenues and it, and it sparked in me that little seed of appreciation of of other um, musical opportunities and, and things like that yeah, yeah. It's just amazing how far you have travelled from doing what you do. You've you've gone to so many different incredible, incredible places all over the world. And I'm I'm wondering, you you went on obviously to become such an accomplished and established young instrumentalist. How did you find entering the world of brass banding and particularly the championships as a young female player in what was then quite a predominantly male environment? Um, when I was younger, um, I was really lucky in that I wasn't. It wasn't ever brought to my attention that that I couldn't do something, and I link that both back to being a a, a girl, a woman, and and also being a baritone horn player because uh, my instrument is perhaps not the most famous for being a solo instrument. But no one ever said to me, "Okay, you're you're good now. Now it's time to move on to a euphonium or a trombone or anything like that." Um, it wasn't it wasn't seen as a something that would hold me back and and the same with being a girl and and I do thank the teachers and you know family members that I was surrounded by at that time as well as the people in in the bands that I played in um West Calder then Broxburn uh, Public and Whitburn uh, all as well as the West Island Schools Brass Band these people all just it it wasn't ever drawn to my attention and that this this might be something different um and it was in all honesty, it was probably when I moved to England that this this sort of situation became more apparent to me. Um, I moved without wishing to fast forward too much. Um, I've, I've, I yeah. moved I moved down to Manchester to do a postgrad course at the Royal Northern College of Music, and um, yeah. at that time, you know, there there was sort of a hand, half a dozen of the top bands, and there was, you know, half of them that I couldn't play in because I was a woman, and wow. that that. Even in two thousand and five, that was the case, and isn't that just wow. crazy? Is it you know it when is, you think yeah. about that? And you know, thankfully, uh, the, that is no longer the case, it, it, and it's a, the right way to do. It. But I think it became more apparent the older I got, the more aware I became of of these things. Yeah, but as a young child uh, and and a teenager, um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't something that I was um, particularly um, aware of, or it wasn't made to be an issue more specifically yeah, actually. it sounds yeah. like where your original band that you started in was just like a family it sounds like yeah. such a gorgeous thing to be part of at that age and yeah. it's just really interesting that you then went on as you said to do your masters at the Royal Northern uh, College of Music but before that mm. I know brass finding has been a huge part of your life but you've also got an honours degree in law from the University of Glasgow and then went on to become a qualified solicitor all st- whilst leading this seemingly double life as an award-winning young baritone horn player for one of the best brass bands in the world. So firstly, how on earth did you do that? <laughs> and secondly, what made you eventually leave that world of law and why? Sure. Um, well, I was lucky uh, enough to have the support and the opportunities at school um, to invest time in my studies and um did reasonably well in in all of my exams at school and um and law seemed like a, a 
a good challenge and a good opportunity and a real good degree that sort of stands um it, it stands you in good stead no matter what you want to do in life really um, and I had a great time uh, at Glasgow University it was a, a wonderful uni um, like I said I did an exchange for six months to Brisbane in Australia uh, which was just immense and going on fast forward sort of 10 15 years when I'm now teaching uh, young kids at uni I always say to the students if you do have the opportunity to travel and study abroad do it it's just such a fantastic opportunity um, so I had a great time doing that and and yeah and then I, I ended up qualifying in England actually so I just transferred my law degree into an English qualification and, and worked in Waitman's um, LLP which is one of the top 40 law firms in the UK um, wow. and I I worked in Manchester. I worked there for for seven years in the end, actually, which was a great experience, um, and and really taught me a lot of good skills, not you know life skills, business skills, um, different commercial skills, and actually all of these things have stood me in really good stead no matter what I'm doing, um, in in doing? my life. I have to admit, it has been a bit of a slog. <laughs> I'm yeah, not, I'm not imagine. going to lie. Um, and I guess in the sense I. My passion was always was always music and has and is will probably always be music and yeah. I'd plus I did um have a enjoyable time working in the law firm I did have a sort of sense that um this wasn't the road that I was going to travel down straight and narrow and and keep going uh, down this yeah. this road till I became partner and then fell off the end it it, it just I knew it was more of a foundation and I knew it would be something that I wanted to do. Um, and it was going to be good for me to do um, in terms of my self-development, but I didn't and couldn't see myself doing that forever, probably because I knew my real true passion, but also because of family life, actually. And it's a really, yeah. really tough, tough life being a solicitor, believe it or not, um, long, long hours and not much time with family. And I knew I wanted mm. to have a family and I just couldn't see, see all of these things um, yeah, coming together uh, harmoniously for the right reasons. It sounds like it, and you've got two beautiful children now. And you know, I'm just really intrigued. You mentioned all the skill sets that you learned from that incredible, you know, career that you had in law. How do you think that that informed your playing, but also then you becoming a mother? So, uh, it's funny actually. There's many transferable skills between law and music more than what you would think because being a good musician um, or being a good instrumentalist or conductor or whatever it's not just about oh playing from the heart and the soul and all these things of course that's important of course but actually you can't just be solely that that's a little bit self-indulgent actually there's a huge <laughs> responsibility to composers for instance who have put their absolute heart and souls into pieces of music and you've got to look at these music um you know these pieces and and make sense of them make sense of the instruction that they're giving you in terms of tempos dynamics details um, articulation all this stuff and that sort of analytical quality um, is really important so that the analytical skills and, and the attention to detail um, that you have to have as a lawyer and as a solicitor is so transferable to music. It, it really, really is. And and something else which is important as a good solicitor, a good lawyer, will be a good communicator. 
you know, there's we all get frustrated, don't we, with with lawyers. I get frustrated with lawyers and solicitors who communicate in legal parlance and and impenetrable words and documents. It's a nightmare for every everybody knows this. And the, <laughs> the, actually, the best lawyers are the ones that speak clearly that you can understand and you can get a real flavor or picture of what they're trying to say and that's the same as a musician completely and you know like I said you're probably the world's busiest law student at the time because you were <laughs> doing so much with your brass banding and then you went on to balance um, an incredible equally demanding career as a solicitor whilst you then had went on to have your children um your two beautiful children and you're essentially superwoman but how did you manage to balance being a new mum and a traveling musician in the brass band world and how do you think becoming a mother has impacted on your playing gosh you're very kind i'm, I'm squirming here at the things you're saying to be honest this, <laughs> um, i am i am not superwoman by any stretch of imagination but what i am lucky <laughs> to have is people around me that supported me um, and that's yeah. key for any parent um, mother or father is to have people who um, either employ you or that you work with um, who support what you're doing as a person in this stage of life and probably the most important thing is having family support um, and that my husband Brendan Wheeler um, who himself is a very fantastic musician as well as um, being really successful in his career in the British Army and the Royal Corps of Army Music. He has, he has been amazing the whole time in terms of supporting me. It's amazing. You really are a trailblazer. I just love it. I love what you've done and what you're continuing to do. And I think it's fair to say, certainly for the instrument itself, the baritone horn, you've brought it into such a huge limelight and along with it, a huge, whole new, diverse range of repertoire so you were the first sole brass player in the UK to be awarded the BBC Fame Academy bursary and you then went on to use that funding to commission new and original solo repertoire for the instrument. Now, how important do you feel, I'm wondering, is it for the next generation of young players that you spoke about to explore new works and commissions and what did it give you personally in terms of developing your own playing at the time? Yeah, I mean, when I was awarded the Fame Academy bursary, that was just such a wonderful opportunity, but even at the, that young age, I mean, I think I might have been 21 or 22 at the time, I was, you know, quite um, acutely aware that I had a bit of a responsibility uh, to do something with this funding that wasn't just going to be, I guess, selfishly for my benefit. Or I'm thinking of funny examples here, like, you know, buying nice um, concert wear or, or things like that. It had to be something that would have an impact that everyone had access to and that was really important to me. I think that was fueled on by the fact that as I grew up as a young baritone player and someone that really loved the baritone and had a great affinity to the instrument, really felt at home there, felt it was my voice. And when I grew up there was not one single solo album of baritone music. No one had done this yet. Really? And I, and I, I was really frustrated by that because I wanted ideas, I wanted a reference point, I want I was hungry for um, examples and I had to you know scout through all these tapes <laughs> that I mentioned before um, <laughs> and, and CDs and, and really scout around trying to find a solo repertoire and examples of playing and in some ways it's, it's been both a blessing and a curse because what I ended up doing was listening to massive 
variety of, of music. So I would listen to euphonium players. Um, I would listen to trumpet players like, you know, Winston Marcellus. I, I listened to um, cello players playing the solos I was playing, um, like uh, The Swan by Sansons, or perhaps I listened to um, Maria Callas singing Una Voce Poco Fa because I would be playing the old traditional arrangement of that. So I actually, be, it was really nice that I took all the different bits and, and prob- yeah. it probably influenced me. Not probably through intention actually it was probably just uh, a little bit of uh, luck I guess at the time but going back to the original question I did find it frustrating so that is something that I wanted to do and I wanted to get a recording for that purpose that was my real motivation there as well as getting some serious uh, repertoire because there was no concerto with brass band um, at that time there hadn't been one written um, I know Carol, Carol Crompton had done one with Paul Mueller, actually, who's gone on to be a fantastic name in the music industry, um, which was baritone horn and piano. So that was our, our sort of sole concerto at the time. So I really wanted to get someone to write a concerto who who would, I guess, bring a bit of gravitas to the instrument's repertoire. And Martin Ellerby was, um, was someone who I approached to um, really took that challenge and embraced it and what a fantastic guy he was to work with he absolutely agreed with what I wanted to achieve um, and you know he, he, he often quotes the story in terms of the third movement we, you know we had we had to have sort of some uh, discussions as to the content and style of this third movement because I really did want the the concerto to be something that could be performed at recitals and prestigious colleges like the Royal Northern and things like that and it would really stand up against I guess it's counterpart concertos on euphonium like uh, the Wellbeing, the Horowitz and and all of these um all of these names and and Martin uh, and the end we arrived and that concerto was just a game changer really um and and what a fantastic piece it, it was and still is and and from that, um, different different uh, composers uh, also wrote different styles of pieces um, for me, like Pete Meekin, uh, Philip Spark, Philip Harper. And, and f- through that whole process, it, gosh, it really made me think about the instrument in itself. It made me think of what the instrument, what its role was, uh, what its voice was, what its strengths were, what its weaknesses were even. Um, and, and also made me think about how it was important to have an awareness of different styles and different timbre and things like that so um, it helped me grow as a musician. Absolutely I think it's something that is very much needed because you've created such an amazing amazing foundation for them all to build on so absolutely agree and and I'm also wondering now you're at such an established point in your career you've achieved so much Katrina and I'm wondering what has been the biggest obstacle that you faced to get to the point that you're at today? That's a good question. Um, your, your biggest obstacle to achieving your dreams is probably yourself. And I would say that that is definitely true for me. Um, and I don't mind sharing, actually, that I suffered for a, a, quite a long time with a lot of performance anxiety issues. Um, and I really had to address that. And it bubbled away under the surface, you know, when I was younger and didn't really come to the fore. But then it, it, it did sort of come and began to impact on my performance standard actually not my performance standard it began to impact on um my enjoyment of making music my performance experience and I I would say that I ended up in typical stubborn Scottish fashion (laughs) not taking over an answer and I and I thought right I can't 
I, I, I worked too long and too hard to to sort of um, let this be like this forever. I'm going to attack this head on now. So actually, um, became really interested in the psychological aspects of performance, um, and not just music performance and sort of performance in terms of when one particular moment arrives delivering delivering your potential at that moment and that can apply as we know in sport it can apply in business it can apply in the military emergency service services all of these um, things and I find it a fascinating subject actually um, and it's something I'm really passionate about because I've gone through that journey myself so I ended up um, uh, actually doing some cognitive behavioral therapy uh, sessions and I just want to recommend everyone does that if you ever have issues when you are struggling with nerves or stage fright or whatever you want to call it, address it. Don't back off it. Do you remember the moment that you actually, it clicked and you you got to that point where on stage you didn't feel those feelings anymore? Yeah, um, I I think, I can think of some standout performances where things began to work. And one of them was actually the 2012 Europeans at Rotterdam um, when I played with Black Dyke and that was just an amazing sort of roller coaster ride up to that um and this was the first point where i on a stage at an amazing event like that high pressured environment being competition as opposed to a concert that actually it wasn't so much that i played as well as i could possibly play but i really enjoyed it as well and and it was you know that that performance is um you know does in me such a special performance because everyone had that experience as well everyone everyone delivered it's a beautiful thing actually when you have that performance um when it, it doesn't matter if you win or lose or whatever but it's when everyone delivers and and the sum of the parts is just so huge um and it was it was really an emotional emotional performance really really special that sticks out to me and then i guess the most, more, more recently, really, um, would probably be when I played, played Peter Graham's uh, concerto uh, for baritone, his Turbulence t- Tide and Torque. And I played the last two movements, uh, Tide and Torque, with Black Dyke uh, at the Brass Pass contest. And I was selected by Nick Childs and the band to be the featured soloist in a competition environment. So in a band like Black Dyke, I mean... Y- Anyone could be the soloist, and there's so many talented players in that ensemble. So it was a real honour. Um, but then I guess a little bit of, of responsibility and, dare I say, a little bit of pressure there. And I was playing this new piece by Boot Graham, which was very challenging. It was an original work for baritone. So it was almost like all these things were coming together, really. And I decided I'd be working on this uh, concerto. My preparation was, was really thorough. And I'd done lots of trials and runouts of, of the uh, concerto in various shapes and forms. And we'd been working it for a long time. And then probably, um, you know, the week before I turned around and said to Nick, uh, I want to do this from memory. The music is actually putting me off. Um, and I feel like I could deliver and, and really link in um, and, and, and click in with the meaning of the music when I have that freedom. And that, and in some ways, it's kind of high risk, high reward, isn't it, to do something like that? Um, but you know, Nick said, "Okay, go for it." I bet. What an achievement! It does make perfect sense. Such an achievement as going through such a difficult time. I'm really, really inspired by what you said. It's amazing. And 
I'm thinking we're, we're all manoeuvring at the moment into a new world and industry. What does that world look like to you, Katrina? And where do you see yourself five years from now? Another good question. Um, where does any artist see themselves five years from now? It's it's the great unknown now, isn't it? Um, it's been such a difficult time for uh, so many people in, in the arts in general. And it's just a, a real... A transitional period and we're all adjusting and, and doing our best to adapt and, and overcome these issues and in terms of, of my own ambitions I mean I'm as you know as, as you mentioned I have two young kids I have Gabriella and Eva um, who's just eight months and um, my intention actually at this point in my life has always been just to take a little bit of time to be a parent and whilst you know my the fire in my belly, so to speak, hasn't hasn't gone out for sure. Um, I think it is important to take time sometimes to do other things. As you know, and, and many people listening will know, I left Black Dyke uh, just at the end of 2019 before um, all this craziness kicked off in 2020. And that, uh, that was lovely to bring that journey and that chapter uh, to an end. I have really fond memories of playing with Black Dyke and um, I'll be forever grateful to to everyone associated with the band for that opportunity to fulfil that dream really and and ultimately record um, my my solo CD with them with uh, I did a CD just before and finished called Spotlight and that was a big ambition actually mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to sort of do tick everything off my to do list mm-hmm. then in terms of other things you, you know I I feel like I've got so much to give in terms and, and and so much that I want to say as a conductor actually and something we touched on a little bit before is um, women in brass bands and for me one of my biggest passions now actually is um, being part of something that um, supports women conductors uh, particularly in, in, in brass women bands um, because we're we're vastly underrepresented actually and I see look around my peers and there's these women who are so talented so talented and I just feel like they you know as players as adjudicators I've worked with so many good good women and I I want them to to be at that in those leadership roles as conductors similarly when I teach some students coming coming up I think you know they they should be in going for these things and, and there should be avenues for them and I guess being a parent does change it, it does change how you look at things and I'm looking at I've got two little beautiful little girls who are absolute firecrackers you can tell yeah. that at one in four <laughs> and and I just yeah, I just want opportunities to be available for for them. I can totally see that happening, and I'm very excited about it. And I'm really sad to get to the end of this podcast because, to be honest, you've been just such an incredible guest, and I've loved hearing your story, Katrina, and your journey. But we've now come to our final question, which is: What piece of advice would you give to an 18 year old Katrina? Ooh, there's several answers I could give to that, Phoebe. Um, (laughs) The advice I would give to 18 year old Katrina would be uh, to embrace challenges but to be yourself and have your own voice because I think that that's all you can be, isn't it? You can only be yourself. Anything else is a diluted version of 
something else. Yeah, I love that. Oh, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us on Artist Insights today. It's been just wonderful to chat with you and hear your incredible story. Thank you. Thank you, Phoebe. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about Yamaha and our artists, please do tell your friends about the show and subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We'll see you next time for another episode of Artist Insights with Yamaha.